The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to another special quarantine edition of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I am your podcast host, Jack Wilson. We've got a great show lined up today. We are bringing you some literature from the midst of a global pandemic that has sent us all underground in some sense. For me, that's a literal sense. As I while away my hours in the basement, working, reading, and talking to you. Reminds me that we have an H.G. Wells episode On our list, I'm sure we'll be exploring the subterranean world in that one as we dig into his 1895 classic, The Time Machine. George Orwell is on the calendar, too. Another underground specialist, his trips to the coal mines, which are unforgettable. What a fantastic writer. And how about Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, which we covered in our episode on that bizarre, unparalleled author. So... I'm feeling local in one way, intensely local. I've left the confines of my yard exactly once in the past month. Outside, things are surreal. Empty streets, empty playgrounds, spring weather stealing over the earth, and no inhabitants outside to enjoy it. Trees are budding, birds are chirping, animals are suddenly enjoying the lawns and roads and streets and highways. I saw a parade of elephants wild elephants walking down the beltway here in D.C. They probably haven't done that for, who knows, 20 years or so. It's nice to see them re-engaging with their natural habitat. And also, a few squirrels and some rabbits. But while I'm feeling local, intensely local, just me and my wife and the boys all cooped up, I also feel connected in some ways. And that's what we're going to celebrate here today. Connected? At a time of Social distancing? Well, yes. This is a worldwide crisis that reminds us of how connected we all are through our systems of commerce, our food chain, our internet connectivity, and the travel from place to place, city to city, and country to country that are all part of modern life. We are a global society, from the markets of China to the Colorado Rockies, from the streets of Brazil to the inside of the Kremlin. Images and information flash around the globe, and so do people, ordinarily, and so do viruses. We are all individuals holed up by ourselves or in tiny groups, but we are all still part of the great global game, too. We're going to celebrate our connectivity in three ways today, which I will describe in reverse order. First, we'll be ending with Italo Calvino. Italo Calvino from my beloved Italy. Reading him transports me out of my basement. And the story we're going to feature, The Distance of the Moon, from his collection Le Cosmic Comique, or in English, Cosmic Comics, is one that takes me out of my basement. It's a rollicking adventure story of sorts, a love story like no other, a dreamy, fantastical story about what the world was like way back when. When the moon was so close to the earth, you could climb a ladder and jump into the moon's gravity and look up at the earth from there. So it doesn't just 
transport me to Italy and the days I spent in Bologna on a hammock overlooking a valley of fresh and fertile fields, although it does do that. That was the first time I read Calvino, but it also transports me, and I think it will transport you too, to a world outside time, a timeless global world that mostly takes place on the sea or on the moon, and the characters could be from anywhere. They are human beings. That is all, and that is everything. Before that, we will listen to a few emails, three emails from three different countries, all good listeners and supporters of the podcast. And before that, the first thing up, we will hear from a pair of wonderful people who work for a project that I hope you will all consider supporting, the African Library Project. This is a volunteer-driven, community-to-community project that helps take books from the United States and fill the shelves of libraries in Africa. They've built 3,000 libraries over there, one by one. You'll hear how they got started how it works, and how you or someone you know might be able to create your very own library in Africa. We'll have our conversation with Robin Speed and Tatiana Santos, and then our multicultural emails, and finally, our featured author, Italo Calvino, coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now are two individuals who work with the African Library Project, Robin Speed, the Interim Executive Director, and Tatiana Santos, the Youth Program Manager. Robin and Tatiana, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're very excited to, to be on the show today. Good. So this is a wonderful project with a mission that's very near and dear to my heart, as I'm sure it is for many of my listeners as well. Let's start with Robin. Robin, what is the African Library Project? Sure. So, yeah, we are a California-based volunteer-driven organization, and our mission is really straightforward. It is to start or improve libraries across Sub-Saharan Africa. And what's really cool is how we do that work. 
Um, we do that work by mobilizing people here in the United States and some folks in Canada to do book drives in their home communities, in their schools, businesses, wherever makes sense for them. And our ask assemble is that they just collect 1,000 books and raise $500. And through that project here in the United States, we are able to transform uh, those books into small community-based libraries in the seven African countries that we serve. Mm, okay. Well, there's a lot there. You've basically led into all of my follow-up questions. So let me uh, <laughs> let me tick through those one by one. So how did this begin? I- I'm giving you the elevator pitch. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yep. How did this begin? Yeah. So we uh, started in 2005 and our founder, uh, Chris Bradshaw, is from California. She's from Portobo Valley out here in the Bay Area. And she was on a vacation with her family in a small country called Lesotho, which is actually sort of completely enclosed within South Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. And while she was there in 2005, she was there with two of her children. Um, and they were reading books and at some point kind of got a little antsy and was like, Hey, we need some more books. We need some stuff to do. We're getting a little bored. And, um, she started to have conversations with local communities and realized, um, that there was really one library, um, functioning library in the country that people knew, um, of, and that was in the capital city. And it kind of blew her mind that in an entire country, there was one accessible library. And she, you know, if you know our founder, she is a very uh, action oriented person um, where there's a need, her instincts are to respond. And so through some of these local uh, conversations, she said, look, you know, if you guys can create a local committee of teachers and parents and community members. And if you can get the structure and if you can get the shelving, I'll go to the United States and I'll figure out how to get the books. And that was pretty much the origin of our first library in Lesotho. Um, So I think the story goes that maybe a month later, she gets a call from a community leader and he says, look, we've built a hut. (laughs) We have the shelves. And so, you know, she sort of looked in the mirror and said, oh, my God, I got to follow through with this. And from that point on until now, where we've sent over 3000 libraries, it's been this community to community partnership where folks um, in the countries that we serve say, hey, we really, really want these resources. And we partner with them to say, here's how we can step in and help uh, fill in the gap. Mm. So there's 3000 libraries you've already set up. Yes. yes. Wow. And are there libraries that are are being built now or being prepared and they're just waiting for their shipment of books? Yeah. So we are always operating kind of have this continuous year to year calendar. Um, And so we work currently, we've touched um, sorry, 12 different countries. So we've worked in 12 different countries across Africa, but we currently are operating in seven countries. Um, They are, I'll go ahead and list them for your uh, listeners. They're Ghana and Sierra Leone in West Africa. And then in East Africa, we're in Kenya and Uganda. And then in Southern Africa, we are in Malawi, Lesotho, Botswana. Mm. Yes, I have all of them. And is there any any particular reason why those seven countries? Yeah, so there's a lot that goes into this work. So as I said, the core to the model is really the partnership on the ground. We Mm kind of see ourselves just being sort of that secondary partner. Um, And so one of our requirements is that there is a U.S. Peace Corps uh, presence there. Mm -hmm. And that sort Mm -hmm. of serves as a 
indicator for us for stability um, and a certain level of continuous infrastructure where we feel as if these books will be uh, supported and sustained over the long term. Right. You know, my cousin did this uh, years and years ago. He was in the Peace Corps in the Philippines. And one of his uh, big initiatives was to create some libraries there. He also planted a lot of trees. But it was, um, you know, it was similar where it was the books would come in from the U.S. And, and it was the key was to find a home. It's kind of a nice model. I think a lot of us who are used to donating, you know, there's always this this wonder if you're giving supplies or, you know, something in the wake of a hurricane or something like that. You hear stories about crates of things that are dropped off in places and then it's really hard to get them to the people who need them or maybe okay. it's something that's not needed. But the idea that it's community to community where you have, you know, huts being built with empty shelves waiting for the books, it seems like uh, uh, you could feel really good about sending those books knowing that the home is already there. Exactly. And I, I think what also is very cool about our model is that the school or community that gets the resources, they know where it comes from, right? So they mm, know it came mm-hmm. from a middle school, right, in Buffalo, New York. And there's just a way, and it, it feels very, very relevant in this time to feel that sense of connection globally um, yeah. and sort of getting back to sort of the core um, of giving, mm-hmm. no matter what the the the, uh, the need is. And so I, I love that aspect to our model. And it's something that we really strive um, to implement in every single country that we work in. Mm-hmm. So is the is the paradigm as far as the donor side would be a, a medical, uh, sorry, a middle school student or a high school student or something who's looking for a, a project or maybe a teacher or some parents or something who are looking to organize a, I guess you said it was a thousand books and $500 for the shipment. And uh, then they get some guidance from you on, on how to make this happen. And then presumably, I know my kids have, for example, uh, so they have service requirements that they have to do in order to graduate from high school. The county requires them to do a certain number of hours, or there's probably scouts or, you know, people like that who are looking for uh, some infrastructure for projects that they'd like to do. Is it possible to be involved if you're if one of my listeners is just looking to contribute some money or or um, you know ship some books somewhere in the states? Uh, are there projects that have kind of uh, you know a, a website or a need that they're looking for resources to come in from individuals? Absolutely. So our model, um, like we've been doing this work for 15 years. So our model is pretty tight um, in that we ask people to do a full book drive, um, which is Mm -hmm. that 1000 books and and the fundraising of $500. But now in these times, uh, particularly with the global pandemic of COVID-19, we are now thinking about how we can Um, really be creative and Mm -hmm. sort of have really sort of grassroots um, energy to this in the United States in a way that makes sense for different communities. And so um, if you go to our website, AfricanLibraryProject.org, you can find about our out about our full model. And if you think that you can pull together a team to do a full book drive, that's amazing because that way we can match you one to one with a school and you know what school you're donating to. And there's this full process. But if it's, you know, if, if, um, thousand books is a bit too uh, large of a commitment at this time, given the time of uncertainty, we are now creating options for folks to be able to send one box or two boxes of children's books. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so they go, go to our website um, and there's a form called Connect With Us. We are, what I do love, and I haven't been able to um, mention this yet, is how much our work is, is driven by volunteers. Mm-hmm. And so we have mm-hmm. like this great team, about 25 volunteers here in the United States, um, that really help support our uh, U.S. book drive organizers. Um, and so if you just get in touch with us, there is a way, <laughs> there is a creative solution that we can come with to figure out how to utilize um, the resources that um, folks have to donate and to give it to schools um, in need. Right. And you're looking for lightly used children's books. Is that right? Yes. Gently used children's books, K through eight. We do take some sing- uh, secondary or high school materials. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, gently used. And are there any kinds of books that you often get that you you think don't work as well? I know, you know, whenever I donate or whenever I go into a a used book sale for a fundraiser or something, I see a lot of books that, you know, the volunteers are, are not exactly eager to get. I don't know if it might be old textbooks or is there anything that, that listeners could avoid donating books that, that aren't suitable for this project? Yeah, so if you go on our website, we do have a book drive guidelines that kind of so there's a uh, sorting mm. um, list in terms of what to include and what we discourage people from from sending. Um, in general, I think the the best sort of lens to have is how do I curate the best collection of books for mm, a community right. or school in Africa, right? Like just yeah. very practical. And so thinking about universal stories um, yeah. that are two sort like where a kid doesn't have to understand sort of Western culture or aspects of American life to be able to understand. So we discourage sending things that have um, a lot of things around holidays. Um, Mm. We don't at all send anything that has any religious uh, content in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, just anything that perhaps culturally would not translate Um, and things that have dense print or, um, uh, complex language sometimes isn't the best. Uh, pretty much all of the students, while English is their official language, they still are English language learners. So we find that um, our schools really appreciate easy readers and those sort of basic books that really, really are critical when you are um, uh, acquiring a new language or you're reading in your second language. Um, but other than that, kids are kids, right? And so the same stories that make your kids laugh and smile and reflect and connect, uh, those things are universal. Um, mm. And so we just say to send with joy. I know that sounds a little like cliche, but really, really send um, materials and books that uh, for you and your family and your community spark joy um, and fun. And, mm. and we're excited to put that in the hands of children in Africa. Right. And I'm sure to um, go off of what Robin is mentioning, we also have a youth ambassador and he is so impressive, just so truly um, intelligent. And he has come up with this STEM initiative. And so his goal is STEM focused books Mm -hmm. in African libraries. And so um, any STEM related material that is absolutely um, highly encouraged to send it if it's available. Right. 
And are there any, um, I know you said there's a, a sort of an ongoing connection that the donors can maintain with the libraries. Do you have any success stories or can you give us a flavor of what that might look like? Yeah, so I think what's cool about our model is that that we define success sort of um, in a two-pronged way. So one, of course, the most important goal for us is to create libraries that stimulate learning and improved reading on the Africa side. But this is also a tremendous opportunity to be engaged in uh, service leadership on the United States side and to Mm. connect Mm -hmm. people. Um, And so on the Africa side, What's really cool is because we've been doing this work for quite a bit of time, we now have kids who um, are grown. (laughs) They're adults now. Um, They are in college or even are um, in their careers, and they were beneficiaries of our libraries. And so we have quite a few anecdotal stories of uh, young people who are now teachers and said, you know, I actually really wasn't into learning. I wasn't really into reading or school, I should say. And and um, the presence of that library made a difference for them. And now they can pass it forward as educators mm. or in their their roles. And so that is tremendously inspiring to see sort of the long term impact that access to books has on, on someone's life. Um, but on the U.S. side, and Tatiana might be able to speak to this, is we now have this amazing amazing cadre of young people who started doing book drives with us when they were in elementary school or primary school and they still do it year after year on into Mm. high school and so this this has been a leadership opportunity for them because there's a lot that goes into a book drive there's countless calls and you know uh, knocking on neighbors' doors and putting up posters and getting the word out and having to sort of put yourself out in that leadership role to try to pull together to do something bigger than yourself. Um, yeah. And so that, that's another success story is um, the dozens, if I, I might even say hundreds of young people here in the United States who have used um, the African Library Project for their own um, leadership growth and connection to service. Yeah. And it just seems so manageable. A thousand books and five hundred dollars. It seems like, you know, that's something that uh, any middle schooler could could manage to pull together with some initiative and a few months to work on it. And, um, you know, it's nice that it's it's such a concrete goal. Absolutely. Right. I, and that's, go ahead. that's the thing that's that's um, truly amazing with um, these young people is um, the youth engagement program is really focused on empowering youth to make an impact in the world of literacy and to give them support to grow as leaders. But um, you see this this passion and um, empathy in these young people where they're really empowering themselves and empowering each other. And it's just really a beautiful thing to see. And um, as Robin mentioned, they these, these youth are continuing to run these book drives um, year after year because it's something that they're passionate about. And um, it's truly just uh, amazing to see and to hear their ideas and how innovative they are. So I am uh, very excited to be part of everything that they're doing. Well, I just think what you guys are doing is fantastic. There's just something magical about putting a book in the hands of a child and to think that uh, through this project, you've been able to bring those books to children in Africa who otherwise wouldn't have that those library shelves that we all sometimes take for granted, and to keep them full of of books and joy is just a 
Fantastic thing. Where can the listeners learn more about the project? Sure. So you can learn more about our work by going to the African, or sorry, www.africanlibraryproject.org. Um, there's tons of information and you can just fill out, there's a simple form that says connect with us. And so no matter what your question is or the idea that you have to donate or connect with us, we are excited to start the conversation. And I do just want to make a note. Um, we've stressed, you know, the youth engagement component of this, but I do want to make a note that all kinds of people do book drives for us. We have senior citizens um, who do book drives. We have businesses that do it as a team building exercise. And so this isn't just something for uh, students and parents and teachers. It's for everyone who might have um, access to books and want to try to uh, make a difference in someone else's life by sharing what they have. Mm. The project is the African Library Project. Robin Speed and Tatiana Santos, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having us. Wasn't that great? A thousand books and $500, and you too can be the proud donor of a library to a community where young people are like flowers waiting to open. Who knows what kind of impact that would have? What a great way to share some learning and some literature and some joy to a corner of the world where they might not have access to those books. Otherwise, empty shelves. I hope you will consider setting one up setting up a book drive to fill those empty shelves, either by yourself or with a partner. Maybe your child would like to be involved with organizing this, or one of your students, or maybe the senior center where your parent lives or where you live, or maybe your organization or business would benefit from working together on this and getting something done. I love it. AfricanLibraryProject.org. Maybe this is something you can plan for when we get back to normal. Go over there now, read about it, contact them, put things in the works. Something you can do in the late summer, early fall. Tell them Jack sent you. J-A-C-K-E, or don't. (laughs) They'll be happy to have your help either way. Okay, three emails from three listeners in three different countries. First up is, oh, actually it's a review from Agent Nips in Canada, who reviewed us on Apple Podcasts back in February. Subject was, for real. Review, five stars out of five. The review reads, Jack means so much to me. He is a dear friend and sweet and deep, capital letters deep, relief within a culture of blah and bland and soul-crushing shallowness. Every now and then I take a hiatus and get wrapped up in other podcasts. But always my heart calls for (laughs) this one time and time again. I will always return to you, Jack. I'm your soul salmon, returning to your fertile sanctuary of concepts and mental stimulation, but also your sweet, gentle voice, which soothes the violent turbulence within me. Thanks so much for all that you do. Well, (laughs) Agent Nips, if that is indeed your real name, you're very welcome, and thank you for your kind words. going to overlook the fact that you stray once in a while to visit other podcasts. That's okay. I'm comfortable enough. 
confident enough. I'm so glad to hear that you're enjoying the podcast and that you are my soul salmon, which reminded me of my days in Seattle and the trips I used to take to the great flowing rivers of the Pacific Northwest. Oh, and my honeymoon in Alaska, where the bears stand waiting to watch the salmon go by. See, I could have said that they paw them out of the water and eat them raw, but that's not what I'm going for here today. Today is a day of connectivity and spiritual togetherness. And so I say to my soul salmon, and to all my soul salmon, salmons, Salmon, yes, go forth, you majestic creature, and return, always return. We will be here for you. That one got a little strange. Next up is from Armand. Subject, hi from Iran. Dear Jack, I discovered your podcast only last week, and I wanted to thank you. I am from Iran, Tehran. And these days, things are not easy here. I like the way you express yourself. You kind of live the literature. However, it feels good to listen to you from here alone at late night. Maybe you may like some time to talk about Rumi or Hafiz or Saadi, great Persian writers. Keep up the good job, Jack. Best, Armand. What a beautiful little note. Kind of live the literature. Yes, that's pretty true. I feel the most alive when I'm immersed in a book or when I'm here talking about them with you, or reading the emails. I guess I do live literature. I love the image of you late at night, finding some company in the podcast episodes in hard times. Yes, I definitely want to include some great Persian writers. That is on the list. It's on the calendar. I will try to do that soon. Maybe I need to move it up. Thank you for your email. And finally, from Sabren. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Subject, greetings from a new Patreon. Dear Jack, after listening to you for two years, I've finally, somewhat, the means to pledge to your Patreon as thanks for your wonderful work. As many of your email writing fans do, I would like to shortly introduce myself. Hi, I'm Sabren, a Swiss-Moroccan, born and living in Switzerland, but from Moroccan descent, and studying molecular biology in Switzerland, though my love lingers over literature and philosophy. By chance, I stumbled over your podcast, and I couldn't stop since. I still remember the first episode I listened to. It featured an email by a Syrian teacher, whom I hope is still doing fine. Since I'm only a poor student living off my scholarship in a very expensive country, I didn't have the means. But after a little raise, due to my bachelor degree being completed, I thought the least I could do is give a little back. Your podcast helped me through a lot, be it the tedious train travel through Europe and Africa, or in dealing with very dark thoughts. I'm quite lonely and have terrible anxiety, which does not help to better the situation I know. And whenever I put your podcast on, I feel a lot safer. It's like I'm home. It may sound a bit creepy. I'm sorry if it does, but I really want to thank you for everything. But especially your To Sleep Perchance to Dream episode did change my perspective a bit. And for that, I'm eternally thankful to you. I'd also like to thank you for introducing me to so many wonderful authors like John Kennedy Toole and Jhumpa Lahiri, but also recontextualizing some of my favorites like Kafka's The Hunger Artist. I appreciate your efforts to really diversify your picks, especially the episode about Ashebe, and would like to suggest some more Arabic author and or African authors 
which could be interesting to read and, of course, to listen to. The Eternally Greats, Nagib Mahfouz, Nagujiwa Tiongo, Asya Jabbar, Tayeb Salim, and Mariam Ba. Last but not least, I would like to show appreciation for your lists shows with Mike. Parentheses. Hi, Mike. <laughs> hope more are to come. Thanks for everything. I hope your family and you have a wonderful time and enjoy the beginning of spring. Sincerely, Sabrin. Hmm, what a fantastic email. Yes, Sabrin, thank you very much for the email. This was written before the pandemic when it looked like spring was going to be a less complicated pleasure. But I thank you for the well wishes. And yes, my family and I are doing well. We're busy playing the game. Pandemic legacy of all things, trying to conquer that tricky little game. I think we're on May now. For those of you who've played it before, you know what that means. Every month the game changes as you rip up cards and put stickers on the board and write notes on your character cards and start dealing with mutating viruses and changed character traits and skills and cities that have higher and higher levels of panic as you go on. It's a fascinating game, sometimes not fun exactly, more hectic and anxiety-producing than fun, but it feels great to win a month. And it's one of those games where you all work together, which is another positive. I got off track with Sabrin. Yes, Sabrin, those authors are on the list. Mafuz and Nguji-Watiango in particular. I think a year or two ago, I went through a big Nguji-Watiango phase. I had an episode all planned, and somehow it never came to fruition. I have some overlap with you, Sabrin. I myself have a Swiss background, thanks to my Swiss mother. And I lived in Morocco for a little while, too. Both great places, but what a contrast. I can imagine those long train rides very well. How you start in one place and end up in the other. Two different worlds. And I'm so glad to hear that the podcast, throughout all of these journeys and adventures, gives you a little sense of home, no matter where you are. And that, my friends, is why we're trying to put out all these shows at this time. A little home. A little normalcy even in very abnormal times, twice a week for as long as we can keep it up. Hopefully, we are doing something very small to help some of you stay connected and stay sane. And of course, we thank you very much for supporting our show through Patreon, which you can do too. Listeners, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash literature, or by buying me a virtual coffee, either through a credit card or a PayPal account, at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Just got another multi-coffee donation the other day. I think it was four coffees, which is nice. Drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> Drink a lot of coffee. Even the virtual coffee will do. Okay. That music tells me we're getting close to eat the low Calvino time. So let's take a quick break. Oh, actually, let's get right to it. We don't need a break, do we? Have you ever been in a meeting like that and you need a break and someone says, I don't need a break, let's just power through. And everyone kind of nods and you just think, who are you to decide? Who are you to decide? What do you do in those moments, people? Do you say, sorry, I disagree, break time? Or do you just nod and say, yeah, mm, power through, sure. Because the person who wants to work always wins over the person who needs a break. Is that just here? Is that just America? America doesn't know how to take a vac- take a vacation. Can't even say the word. It's so foreign. Doesn't know how to take a vacation or a holiday. Doesn't know how to retire. 
America, where we're all convinced we need to belong to our employer and work until we can't see straight and keep working and working until we drop dead. That's the epitaph we should all have. Whatever gets typed on our screen when we drop dead at our desk and our forehead hits the keyboard. His final word was Jehoiarephi. As an experiment, I let my head fall against the keyboard, and that's what I got. That word started with J-H, left bracket, O-I-E-E-R-H-F, semicolon, A-H-I. Carve it on my tombstone. So after all that, we skipped our break and lost our music, and now let's talk about Italo Calvino. But actually, first I want to talk about Chris Farley. As you know, I've been going through a Bob Odenkirk phase, the guy who plays Saul Goodman. And before that, Bob Odenkirk was in Mr. Show, and a long time ago he wrote for Saturday Night Live. And before that, Second City, which was when I was in Chicago. I'm pretty sure I saw him and his complicated energy on stage. I have the program somewhere. I'd have to look at it. I don't remember for sure. I do remember that Chris Farley was on the stage playing a character named Whale Boy. Chris Farley, for those too young or... Those who aren't in America is a great big, or was, a great big walrus of a man who was surprisingly graceful and very funny in a particular way. A physical comedian, a Falstaff. I didn't love him, frankly. He wasn't my favorite comedian, even though he was from Wisconsin. We grew up near each other, and we were about the same age. I was looking for Christopher Guest back then. I was looking for David Letterman. Looking for Gary Shandling, the wisecrack. The deadpan, the rye. Christopher Guest once gave Michael McKeon a birthday present, the collected works of William Shakespeare, and in it he inscribed, This is that writer I was telling you about. Shakespeare. <laughs> That's my, that was my kind of humor. It's still my kind of humor. I like the subtle. What can I say? I like Monty Python and George Carlin and Richard Pryor and Woody Allen and Letterman, I already said him. Chris Farley was more in the John Belushi mode. Explode onto the stage, shout, sweat, loosen his necktie, because he's choking, he's so heavy, almost fall down, then fall down, crashes through a table, you see his underwear, he makes fun of his weight. He was famous for the sketch with Paul McCartney, where he would interview him shyly and then say, that was awesome, after every question, like, did you write Hey Jude? McCartney would say, yes, I did. And Chris Farley would say, oh, that song's awesome. Odenkirk wrote for him the sketch Matt Foley, the motivational speaker who lived in a van down by the river. It's a famous sketch. But that's about as intellectually sophisticated as Farley got. Usually he was big and loud and booming, and he'd crash through walls or into tables, and he was sweaty. It was all kind of tragic. On stage, it was unbelievable. You see it in a theater or on TV or in a movie. It's a little bit sad, a little bit tragic. He died young, had a lot of addiction problems. He was a sad person in spite of his gifts and in spite of his success. But let me get to the point. It's all connected to Italo Calvino, or at least the story we're going to read today. One of Chris Farley's most famous sketches was with Patrick Swayze, professional dancer and professional hunk, the movie star who was in Dirty Dancing. 
The two of them played two dancers auditioning to be Chippendales dancers. And you, the sketch starts where the judges, you see the judges, they can't make up their mind between these two. They're both so good. They've been there for several auditions. And then they come out. It's Swayze and Farley dressed in sleeveless tuxedo shirts, the Chippendales stripper outfits. That's the first joke. It's a visual joke. The fat man next to the hunk. The audience says, who can believe it? came down to these two. What's wrong with the judges? How did they not pick between this obvious superstar and this big, overweight, obese man? And then they start dancing, and Farley is really, really good. He can move. He's got the moves down. He's kind of more into it than Swayze. He's kind of better than Swayze. And the crowd, the audience, loves it. You can hear them loving Chris Farley. It's very charming. It's incredibly powerful. Seeing this guy trying so hard, being so into this dance, was his fourth appearance on Saturday Night Live, I read somewhere, and the sketch made him a star. It's probably one of the five or ten most popular Saturday Night Live sketches of all time. And Bob Odenkirk hated it. He said it was atrocious, and they never should have done it. And he gave his reasoning for it. And I've read some other reviews and descriptions and interviews with people who are around the sketch and around Chris Farley. And I kind of got the sense of what Bob Odenkirk was talking about. It was basically Fatty Falls Down all over again. That's what the writers used to call it. Fatty Falls Down. That was the whole sketch. Chris Farley comes out, says a bunch of things, jumps through a table. Farley himself had reservations about these sketches. They were funny. They were getting laughs. They were making him a star. But the whole joke was that he was big, that he was big and fat, and that made what he did funny. At one point, this is terrible. I mean, the guy struggled his whole life with his weight. He was not healthy. At one point, he asked one of the head writers if on Saturday Night Live if he should gain weight. And the writer said, why? And he said, well, I was wondering if that would make things funnier. Would it be funnier? Would it be better for the show if I gained weight and was bigger? You can see where that kind of a life is headed. Odin Kirk was angry about the sketch, the Chippendale sketch. He was probably even angrier after Farley died. After Farley had been in rehab something like 14 times or something, Farley couldn't numb the pain. And Odin Kirk said that sketch was terrible. It didn't go anywhere. There was no twist. The characters didn't grow. There was no reversal, nothing intellectual. There was no movement to the sketch except the one premise. Ha ha, this guy's too fat to be taken seriously as a Chippendales dancer. And the judges talk about it in those words. And then he dances and then they talk about it again. And then he doesn't get the part. Ha ha ha. Watch Fatty dance. Watch Fatty lose. Now, what does this have to do with literature? Let alone Italo Calvino. Well, Calvino is a high-concept writer. Just like Saturday Night Live is a high-concept show. And Odin Kirk tells us, or at least this is what I'm taking from a lot of different things I read about Odenkirk. His belief is that a high-concept sketch show needs two things. 
The premise has to be great, interesting, compelling, something to draw us in, and well executed. And then the sketch needs more. Then it needs a dose of humanity or heart or something. It needs a narrative. It needs something extra. It needs a plus. It needs high concept plus. It could be intellectual depth in literature. We see this in Borges. It could be surprising pathos. We see this in Kafka. George Saunders and Donald Barthelmay, high concept writers, they get this right when they're at their best. In their lesser stories, this is usually why the stories don't work as well. You can see the authors trying to insert it, trying to go after this little grasp of humanity, but maybe it feels tacked on, maybe it feels unearned. It falls flat. It's the Chippendale sketch. Fatty dancing is the premise. Fatty dancing is the punchline, too. It's also the entire drama, except there is no drama. Farley called his friend and said, Should I do this sketch? Doesn't seem like much other than making fun of me for being fat. It's funny, sure, I can make it funny. But should I do it? And in literature, the same thing can happen. A high-concept story launches with all this energy and then fizzles out. You're left with this glorious setting, this highly unusual idea, maybe some good writing, maybe some extreme cleverness, and then some trite love story. Maybe some epiphany that isn't all that epiphanic. Borges sometimes... Hey, at Borges' best, there's no one better. We've got him coming up soon, by the way. We've already recorded that one, Mike and I. But sometimes... Borges' intellectual engagement feels a little dated or stale or arid or exclusive only to Borges. There's nothing for the reader to squeeze out of it. It's a portico with no house, Nabokov said, or something like that. We have that quote in the episode. Calvino's story today has an amazing setup. The moon, so big, so close, it becomes like a friend. You can jump up to it and mine it for the milk that's there, which has been created by... The moon's gravity pulling creatures and items from the earth and then warming it all when it wheels around past the heat of the desert until it's kind of a fishy soup. Calvino's science is imaginative and plausible, sort of. He sells you on it. It's clear when he skips over the actual science, but he sells you on the idea. It's totally unforgettable. And then... He moves in for the love story, and we get three, maybe four, unforgettable characters. It's kind of a love triangle plus one. I won't spoil that part of the story for you, except to say that you should listen for this pivot. Listen to how the story effortlessly sets the stage, creates the world, tells you about this crew of people and the situation with the moon, and suddenly you find yourself in the most imaginative love story, too. And it's a love story perfectly wedded to the fantastical tale of these moon harvesters. It's about romance and love and obsession and home and life itself. What makes life worth living? What makes death preferable to life? Who decides what that should be? And what does it say about the people who do or don't make extreme choices? What is our connection to the planet? And what could it be to the moon? Calvino was born in 1923 in a suburb of Havana, Cuba. His father was Italian, having emigrated years earlier. His father was a teacher, an agronomist and botanist who had been a revolutionary, an anarchist who'd gone to Mexico to stir things up, and wound up in Cuba 
conducting scientific experiments. His mother was also a botanist and a university professor. She was born in Italy, too, also a scientist. They gave Italo the name Italo to remind him and the world of his Italian heritage. Then he wound up moving back to Italy less than two years after he was born, where he grew up in Italy, thinking that his name sounded kind of militantly Italian. Didn't love his first name. His brother was a geologist. Italo became known for his science-based stories. He was drawn to comics as well as a kid and cartoons and drawings and poetry and theater. All this was at odds with the rest of his family. We're so immersed in science. His earliest memory was of a Marxist professor beaten up by Mussolini's black shirts. All this went into his brain. The youth under fascism, the scientific and academic surroundings, the fiction and storytelling of books like Rudyard Kipling and American movies. He went to university to study physics, but was secretly reading literature. I think when it came time to write, he drew upon all these ideas he developed as a closet literature fan, closeted literature fan, maybe I should say, in the middle of all those scientific and mathematical lectures. One gets the sense that he was studying those topics, but also dreaming his way through them, even as, even though he was pretty successful as a student. Finally, he switched to literature. He did this, his master's thesis on Joseph Conrad. He wrote short stories and got a job at the famous Ainaudi publishing house where he met Natalia Ginsberg and Cesare Pavese and lots of other writers. He's in his 20s now. He wrote some novels that didn't do so well and short stories. He had an affair with an actress who was older and married. He collected Italian folktales for a publishing project. It was trying to find the Italian equivalent of the Brothers Grimm. And finally, he had his successes. Marco Valdo, Cosmic Comics, Invisible Cities, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, Mr. Palomar, to name just a few. By the time he died in 1985, he was the most translated contemporary Italian author in the world. He was hugely influential. Unlikely figures like Saul Bellow, who wrote in a very different style, were fans of his. His work has proved enduring. At its best, it's timeless and placeless, if that's a word, placeless. It takes off into a mystical world of magic and enchantment, rooted in science and scientific fantasy, but overflowing with humanity as well. Let's stop talking now and let his story do the talking for us. Next up, The Distance of the Moon, from... Cosmicomics, published in 1965. Before the moon landing, but after the Kennedy pronouncement, the world had moon fever, and Calvino supplied the dream. The Distance of the Moon by Italo Calvino at one time, according to Sir George H. Darwin, the moon was very close to the earth. Then the tides gradually pushed her far away, the tides that the moon herself causes in the earth's waters, where the earth slowly loses energy. How well I know, old Kuefe Uefeku cried. The rest of you can't remember, but I can. We had her on top of us all the time, that enormous moon. When she was full, nights as bright as day, but with a butter-colored light, it looked as if she were going to crush us. 
When she was new, she rolled around the sky like a black umbrella blown by the wind. And when she was waxing, she came forward with her horns so low, she seemed about to stick into the peak of a promontory and get caught there. But the whole business of the moon's phases worked in a different way then, because the distances from the sun were different, and the orbits, and the angle of something or other, I forget what. As for eclipses, with earth and moon stuck together the way they were, why, we had eclipses every minute. Naturally, those two big monsters managed to put each other in the shade constantly, first one, then the other. Orbit? Oh, elliptical, of course. For a while it would huddle against us, and then it would take flight for a while. The tides, when the moon swung closer, rose so high nobody could hold them back. There were nights when the moon was full and very, very low, and the tide was so high that the moon missed a ducking in the sea by a hair's breadth. Well, let's say a few yards anyway. Climb up on the moon? Of course we did. All you had to do was row out to it in a boat, and when you were underneath, prop a ladder against her and scramble up. The spot where the moon was lowest as she went by was off the zinc cliffs. We used to go out with those little rowboats they had in those days, round and flat, made of cork. They held quite a few of us. Captain Vidvid, his wife, my deaf cousin, and sometimes little Exeltlix. She was twelve or so at that time. On those nights the water was very calm, so silvery it looked like mercury, and the fish in it, violet-colored, unable to resist the moon's attraction, rose to the surface, all of them, and so did the octopuses and the saffron medusas, or jellyfish. There was always a flight of tiny creatures, little crabs, squid, and even some weeds, light and filmy, and coral plants, that broke from the sea and ended up on the moon, hanging down from that lime-white ceiling, or else they stayed in mid-air, a phosphorescent swarm we had to drive off, waving banana leaves at them. This is how we did the job. In the boat, we had a ladder. One of us held it, another climbed to the top, and a third, at the oars, rowed until we were right under the moon. That's why there had to be so many of us. I only mentioned the main ones. The man at the top of the ladder, as the boat approached the moon, would become scared and start shouting, Stop! Stop! I'm going to bang my head! That was the impression you had, seeing her on top of you, immense and all rough with sharp spikes and jagged sawtooth edges. It may be different now, but then the moon, or rather the bottom, the underbelly of the moon, the part that passed closest to the earth and almost scraped it, was covered with a crust of sharp scales. It had come to resemble the belly of a fish, and the smell, too, as I recall, if not downright fishy, was faintly similar, like smoked salmon. In reality, from the top of the ladder, standing erect on the last rung, you could just touch the moon if you held your arms up. We had taken the measurements carefully. We didn't yet suspect that she was moving away from us. The only thing you had to be very careful about was where you put your hands. I always chose a scale that seemed fast— we climbed up in groups of five or six at a time. Then I would cling first with one hand, then with both, and immediately I would feel ladder and boat drifting away from below me, and the motion of the moon would tear me from the earth's attraction. Yes, the moon was so strong that she pulled you up. You realized this the moment you passed from one to the other. You had to swing up abruptly, with a kind of somersault, 
grabbing the scales, throwing your legs over your head, until your feet were on the moon's surface. Seen from the earth, you looked as if you were hanging there with your head down. But for you, it was the normal position, and the only odd thing was that when you raised your eyes, you saw the sea above you, glistening, with the boat and the others upside down, hanging like a bunch of grapes from the vine. My cousin, the deaf one, showed a special talent for making those leaps. His clumsy hands, as soon as they touched the lunar surface, he was always the first to jump up from the ladder, suddenly became deft and sensitive. They found immediately the spot where he could hoist himself up. In fact, just the pressure of his palms seemed enough to make him stick to the satellite's crust. Once I even thought I saw the moon come toward him as he held out his hands. He was just as dexterous in coming back down to earth, an operation still more difficult. For us, it consisted in jumping as high as we could, our arms upraised, seen from the moon, that is, because seen from the earth, it looked more like a dive, or like swimming downwards, arms at our sides. Like jumping up from the earth, in other words, only now we were without the ladder because there was nothing to prop it against on the moon. But instead of jumping with his arms out, my cousin bent toward the moon's surface, his head down as if for a somersault, then made a leap, pushing with his hands. From the boat we watched him, erect in the air as if he were supporting the moon's enormous ball and were tossing it, striking it with his palms. Then, when his legs came within reach, we managed to grab his ankles and pull him down on board. Now, you will ask me what in the world we went up on the moon for. I'll explain it to you. We went to collect the milk, with a big spoon and a bucket. Moon milk was very thick, like a kind of cream cheese. It formed in the crevices between one scale and the next, through the fermentation of various bodies and substances of terrestrial origin, which had flown up from the prairies and forests and lakes as the moon sailed over them. It was composed chiefly of vegetal juices, tadpoles, bitumen, lentils, honey, starch crystals, sturgeon eggs, molds, pollen, gelatinous matter, worms, rosins, pepper, mineral salts, combustion residue. You had only to dip the spoon under the scales that covered the moon's scabby terrain, and you brought it out, filled with that precious muck. Not in the pure state, obviously. There was a lot of refuse. In the fermentation, which took place as the moon passed over the expanses of hot air above the deserts, not all the bodies melted. Some remained stuck in it. Fingernails and cartilage, bolts, seahorses, nuts and peduncles, shards of crockery, fish hooks, at times even a comb. So this paste, after it was collected, had to be refined, filtered. But that wasn't the difficulty. The hard part was transporting it down to the earth. This is how we did it. We hurled each spoonful into the air with both hands, using the spoon as a catapult. The cheese flew, and if we had thrown it hard enough, it stuck to the ceiling, I mean the surface of the sea. Once there, it floated, and it was easy enough to pull it into the boat. In this operation, too, my deaf cousin displayed a special gift. He had strength and a good aim. With a single sharp throw, he could send the cheese straight into a bucket we held up to him from the boat. As for me, I occasionally misfired. The contents of the spoon would fail to overcome the moon's attraction, and they would fall back into my eye. I still haven't told you everything about the things my cousin was good at. That job of extracting lunar milk from the moon scales was child's play to him. 
Instead of the spoon, at times he had only to thrust his bare hand under the scales, or even one finger. He didn't proceed in any orderly way, but went to isolated places, jumping from one to the other, as if he were playing tricks on the moon, surprising her, or perhaps tickling her. And wherever he put his hand, the milk spurted out as if from a nanny goat's teats. So the rest of us had only to follow him and collect with our spoons the substance that he was pressing out, first here, then there, but always as if by chance, since the deaf one's movements seemed to have no clear practical sense. There were places, for example, that he touched merely for the fun of touching them, gaps between two scales, naked and tender folds of lunar flesh. At times my cousin pressed not only his fingers, but, in a carefully gauged leap, his big toe. He climbed onto the moon barefoot, and this seemed to be the height of amusement for him, if we could judge by the chirping sounds that came from his throat as he went on leaping. The soil of the moon was not uniformly scaly, but revealed irregular bare patches of pale, slippery clay. These soft areas inspired the deaf one to turn somersaults, or to fly almost like a bird, as if he wanted to impress his whole body into the moon's pulp. As he ventured farther in this way, we lost sight of him at one point. On the moon there were vast areas we had never had any reason or curiosity to explore, and that was where my cousin vanished. I had suspected that all those somersaults and nudges he indulged in before our eyes were only a preparation, a prelude to something secret meant to take place in the hidden zones. We fell into a special mood on those nights off the zinc cliffs, gay but with a touch of suspense, as if inside our skulls, instead of the brain, we felt a fish floating, attracted by the moon. And so we navigated, playing and singing. The captain's wife played the harp. She had very long arms, silvery as eels on those nights, and armpits as dark and mysterious as sea urchins. And the sound of the harp was sweet and piercing. So sweet and piercing, it was almost unbearable and we were forced to let out long cries, not so much to accompany the music as to protect our hearing from it. Transparent jellyfish rose to the sea's surface, throbbed there a moment, then flew off, swaying toward the moon. Little Exelflix amused herself by catching them in midair, though it wasn't easy. Once, as she stretched her little arms out to catch one, she jumped up slightly and was also set free. Thin as she was, she was an ounce or two short of the weight necessary for the Earth's gravity to overcome the moon's attraction and bring her back, so she flew up among the jellyfish, suspended over the sea. She took fright, cried, then laughed and started playing, catching shellfish and minnows as they flew, sticking some into her mouth and chewing them. We rode hard to keep up with the child. The moon ran off in her ellipse dragging that swarm of marine fauna through the sky and a train of long entwined seaweeds and exultalics hanging there in the midst. Her two wispy braids seemed to be flying on their own, outstretched toward the moon, but all the while she kept wriggling and kicking at the air as if she wanted to fight that influence. And her socks, she had lost her shoes in the flight, slipped off her feet and swayed, attracted by the earth's force. On the ladder, we tried to grab them. The idea of eating the little animals in the air had been a good one. The more weight Exelflix gained, the more she sank toward the earth. In fact, since among those hovering bodies hers was the largest, mollusks and seaweeds and plankton began to gravitate about her, and soon the child was covered with siliceous little cells, chitinous carapaces, and fibers of sea plants. 
and the farther she vanished into that tangle, the more she was freed of the moon's influence, until she grazed the surface of the water and sank into the sea. We rowed quickly to pull her out and save her. Her body had remained magnetized, and we had to work hard to scrape off all the things encrusted on her. Tender corals were wound about her head, and every time we ran the comb through her hair, there was a shower of crayfish and sardines. Her eyes were scaled shut by limpets, clinging to the lids with their suckers. Squid's tentacles were coiled around her arms and her neck, and her little dress now seemed woven only of weeds and sponges. We got the worst of it off her, but for weeks afterwards, she went on pulling out fins and shells, and her skin, dotted with little diatoms, remained affected forever, looking, to someone who didn't observe her carefully, as if it were faintly dusted with freckles. This should give you an idea of how the influences of Earth and Moon, practically equal, fought over the space between them. I'll tell you something else. A body that descended to the Earth from the satellite was still charged for a while with lunar force and rejected the attraction of our world. Even I, big and heavy as I was, every time I had been up there, I took a while to get used to the Earth's up and its down, and the others would have to grab my arms and hold me, clinging in a bunch in the swaying boat, while I still had my head hanging and my legs stretching up to the sky. Hold on, hold on to us, they shouted at me, and in all that groping, sometimes I ended up by seizing one of Mrs. Vidvid's breasts, which were round and firm, and the contact was good and secure and had an attraction as strong as the moon's or even stronger, especially if I managed, as I plunged down, to put my other arm around her hips, and with this I passed back into our world and fell with a thud into the bottom of the boat, where Captain Vidvid brought me around, throwing a bucket of water in my face. This is how the story of my love for the captain's wife began, and my suffering, because it didn't take me long to realize whom the lady kept looking at insistently. When my cousin's hands clasped the satellite, I watched Mrs. Vidvid, and in her eyes I could read the thoughts that the deaf man's familiarity with the moon were arousing in her. And when he disappeared in his mysterious lunar explorations, I saw her become restless, as if on pins and needles, and then it was all clear to me how Mrs. Vidvid was becoming jealous of the moon, and I was jealous of my cousin. Her eyes were made of diamonds, Mrs. Vidvid's. They flared when she looked at the moon, almost challengingly, as if she were saying, You shan't have him and I felt like an outsider. The one who least understood all of this was my deaf cousin. When we helped him down, pulling him, as I explained to you, by his legs, Mrs. Vidvid lost all her self-control, doing everything she could to take his weight against her own body, folding her long, silvery arms around him. I felt a pang in my heart. The times I clung to her, her body was soft and kind, but not thrust forward the way it was with my cousin while he was indifferent, still lost in his lunar bliss. I looked at the captain, wondering if he also noticed his wife's behavior, but there was never a trace of any expression on that face of his, eaten by brine, marked with tarry wrinkles. Since the deaf one was always the last to break away from the moon, his return was the signal for the boats to move off. Then, with an unusually polite gesture, Vidvid picked up the harp from the bottom of the boat, and handed it to his wife. She was obliged to take it and play a few notes. Nothing could separate her more from the deaf one than the sound of the harp. I took to singing in a low voice that sad song that goes, 
Every shiny fish is floating, floating, and every dark fish is at the bottom, at the bottom of the sea. And all the others, except my cousin, echoed my words. Every month, once the satellite had moved on, the deaf one returned to his solitary detachment from the things of the world. Only the approach of the full moon aroused him again. That time I had arranged things so it wasn't my turn to go up. I could stay in the boat with the captain's wife. But then, as soon as my cousin had climbed the ladder, Mrs. Vidvid said, This time I want to go up there too. This had never happened before. The captain's wife had never gone up on the moon. But Vidvid made no objection. In fact, he almost pushed her up the ladder bodily, exclaiming, Go ahead then! And we all started helping her, and I held her from behind, felt her round and soft on my arms, and to hold her up I began to press my face and the palms of my hands against her. And when I felt her rising into the moon's sphere, I was heartsick at that lost contact. So I started to rush after her, saying, I'm going to go up for a while, too, to help out. I was held back as if in a vice. You stay here. You have work to do later, the captain commanded without raising his voice. At that moment, each one's intentions were already clear, and yet I couldn't figure things out. Even now, I'm not sure I've interpreted it all correctly. Certainly the captain's wife had for a long time been cherishing the desire to go off privately with my cousin up there, or at least to prevent him from going off alone with the moon, but probably she had a still more ambitious plan, one that would have to be carried out in agreement with the deaf one. She wanted the two of them to hide up there together and stay on the moon for a month. But perhaps my cousin, deaf as he was, hadn't understood anything of what she had tried to explain to him. Or perhaps he hadn't even realized that he was the object of the lady's desires. And the captain? He wanted nothing better than to be rid of his wife. In fact, as soon as she was confined up there, we saw him give free rein to his inclinations and plunge into vice. And then we understood why he had done nothing to hold her back. But had he known from the beginning that the moon's orbit was widening? None of us could have suspected it. The deaf one, perhaps, but only he. In the shadowy way he knew things, he may have had a presentiment that he would be forced to bid the moon farewell that night. This is why he hid in his secret places and reappeared only when it was time to come back down on board. It was no use for the captain's wife to try to follow him. We saw her cross the scaly zone various times, length and breadth, then suddenly she stopped, looking at us in the boat, as if about to ask us whether we had seen him. Surely there was something strange about that night. The sea's surface, instead of being taut as it was during the full moon, or even arched a bit toward the sky, now seemed limp, sagging, as if the lunar magnet no longer exercised its full power. And the light, too, wasn't the same as the light of other full moons. The night's shadows seemed somehow to have thickened. Our friends up there must have realized what was happening. In fact, they looked up at us with frightened eyes. And from their mouths and ours, at the same moment, came a cry. The moon's going away! The cry hadn't died out when my cousin appeared on the moon, running. He didn't seem frightened or even amazed. He placed his hands on the terrain, flinging himself into his usual somersault, but this time, after he had hurled himself into the air, he remained suspended, as little Exelflix had. He hovered a moment between moon and earth, upside down, then, laboriously moving his arms like someone swimming against a current, he headed with unusual slowness toward our planet. From the moon, the other sailors hastened to follow his example. 
Nobody gave a thought to getting the moon milk that had been collected into the boats, nor did the captain scold them for this. They had already waited too long. The distance was difficult to cross by now. When they tried to imitate my cousin's leap or his swimming, they remained there, groping, suspended in midair. Cling together! Idiots! Cling together! The captain yelled. At this command, the sailors tried to form a group, a mass, to push all together until they reached the zone of the Earth's attraction. All of a sudden, a cascade of bodies plunged into the sea with a loud splash. The boats were now rowing to pick them up. Wait! The captain's wife is missing! I shouted. The captain's wife had also tried to jump, but she was still floating only a few yards from the moon, slowly moving her long, silvery arms in the air. I climbed up the ladder, and in a vain attempt to give her something to grasp, I held the harp out toward her. I can't reach her! We have to go after her! And I started to jump up, brandishing the harp. Above me, the enormous lunar disk no longer seemed the same as before. It had become much smaller. It kept contracting, as if my gaze were driving it away, and the emptied sky gaped like an abyss where, at the bottom, the stars had begun multiplying, and the night poured a river of emptiness over me drowned me in dizziness and alarm. I'm afraid, I thought. I'm too afraid to jump. I'm a coward. And at that moment, I jumped. I swam furiously through the sky and held the harp out to her. And instead of coming toward me, she rolled over and over, showing me first her impassive face and then her backside. Hold tight to me, I shouted, and I was already overtaking her entwining my limbs with hers. If we cling together, we can go down. And I was concentrating all my strength on uniting myself more closely with her. And I concentrated my sensations as I enjoyed the fullness of that embrace. I was so absorbed I didn't realize at first that I was, indeed, tearing her from her weightless condition, but was making her fall back on the moon. Didn't I realize it, or had that been my intention from the very beginning? Before I could think properly, a cry was already bursting from my throat. I'll be the one to stay with you for a month. Or rather, on you, I shouted in my excitement. On you for a month. And at that moment, our embrace was broken by our fall to the moon's surface, where we rolled away from each other among those cold scales. I raised my eyes as I did every time I touched the moon's crust, sure that I would see above me the native sea like an endless ceiling. And I saw it, yes, I saw it this time too, but much higher and much more narrow, bound by its borders of coasts and cliffs and promontories, and how small the boats seemed, and how unfamiliar my friends' faces, and how weak their cries. A sound reached me from nearby. Mrs. Vidvid had discovered her harp and was caressing it, sketching out a chord as sad as weeping. A long month began. The moon turned slowly around the earth. On the suspended globe we no longer saw our familiar shore, but the passage of oceans as deep as abysses and deserts of glowing lapilli and continents of ice and forests writhing with reptiles and the rocky walls of mountain chains gashed by swift rivers and swampy cities and stone graveyards and empires of clay and mud. The distance spread a uniform color over everything. The alien perspectives made every image alien, Herds of elephants and swarms of locusts ran over the plains, so evenly vast and dense and thickly grown that there was no difference among them. I should have been happy. As I had dreamed, I was alone with her. 
That intimacy with the moon I had so often envied my cousin, and with Mrs. Vidvid was now my exclusive prerogative, a month of days and lunar nights stretched uninterrupted before us. The crust of the satellite nourished us with its milk, whose tart flavor was familiar to us. We raised our eyes up, up to the world where we had been born, finally traversed in all its various expanse, explored landscapes no earth being had ever seen, or else we contemplated the stars beyond the moon, big as pieces of fruit, made of light, ripened on the curved branches of the sky, and everything exceeded my most luminous hopes, and yet, and yet, it was, instead, exile. I thought only of the earth. It was the earth that caused each of us to be that someone he was, rather than someone else. Up there, rested from the earth, it was as if I were no longer that I, nor she that she, for me. I was eager to return to the earth, and I trembled at the fear of having lost it. The fulfillment of my dream of love had lasted only that instant when we had been united, spinning between earth and moon, torn from its earthly soil, my love now knew only the heart-rending nostalgia for what it lacked. A where, a surrounding, a before and after. This is what I was feeling. But she? As I asked myself, I was torn by my fears, because if she also thought only of the earth, this could be a good sign, a sign that she had finally come to understand me. But it could also mean that everything had been useless, that her longings were directed still and only toward my deaf cousin. Instead, she felt nothing. She never raised her eyes to the old planet. She went off, pale among those wastelands, mumbling dirges and stroking her harp, as if completely identified with her temporary, as I thought, lunar state. Did this mean I had won out over my rival? No, I had lost a hopeless defeat, because she had finally realized that my cousin loved only the moon, and the only thing she wanted now was to become the moon, to be assimilated into the object of that extra-human love. When the moon had completed its circling of the planet, there we were again over the zinc cliffs. I recognized them with dismay. Not even in my darkest previsions had I thought the distance would have made them so tiny. In that mud puddle of the sea, my friends had set forth again, without the now useless ladders, but from the boats rose a kind of forest of long poles. Everybody was brandishing one, with a harpoon or a grappling hook at the end, perhaps in the hope of scraping off a last bit of moon milk, or of lending some kind of help to us wretches up there. But it was soon clear that no pole was long enough to reach the moon, and they dropped back, ridiculously short, humbled, floating on the sea, and in that confusion some of the boats were thrown off balance and overturned. But just then, from another vessel, a longer pole, which till then they had dragged along on the water's surface, began to rise. It must have been made of bamboo, of many, many bamboo poles stuck one into the other, and to raise it they had to go slowly because, thin as it was, if they let it sway too much it might break." Therefore they had to use it with great strength and skill, so that the wholly vertical weight wouldn't rock the boat. Suddenly it was clear that the tip of that pole would touch the moon, and we saw it graze, then press against the scaly terrain, rest there a moment, give a kind of little push, or rather a strong push that made it bounce off again, then come back and strike that same spot, as if on the rebound, then move away once more. And I recognized... We both, the captain's wife and I, recognized my cousin. 
It couldn't have been anyone else. He was playing his last game with the moon, one of his tricks, with the moon on the tip of his pole, as if he were juggling with her. And we realized that his virtuosity had no purpose, aimed at no practical result. Indeed, you would have said he was driving the moon away, that he was helping her departure, that he wanted to show her to her more distant orbit. And this, too, was just like him. He was unable to conceive desires that went against the moon's nature, the moon's course and destiny. And if the moon now tended to go away from him, then he would take delight in this separation, just as till now he had delighted in the moon's nearness. What could Mrs. Vidvid do in the face of this? It was only at this moment that she proved her passion for the deaf man hadn't been a frivolous whim, but an irrevocable vow. If what my cousin now loved was the distant moon, then she too would remain distant on the moon. I sensed this, seeing that she didn't take a step toward the bamboo pole, but simply turned her harp toward the earth, high in the sky, and plucked the strings. I say I saw her, but to tell the truth I only caught a glimpse of her out of the corner of my eye, because the minute the pole had touched the lunar crust I had sprung and grasped it, and now, fast as a snake, I was climbing up the bamboo knots, pushing myself along with jerks of my arms and knees, light in the rarefied space, driven by a natural power that ordered me to return to the earth, oblivious of the motive that had brought me here, or perhaps more aware of it than ever, and of its unfortunate outcome. And already my climb up the swaying pole had reached the point where I no longer had to make any effort, but could just allow myself to slide head first, attracted by the earth, until in my haste the pole broke into a thousand pieces, and I fell into the sea among the boats. My return was sweet, my home refound, but my thoughts were filled only with grief at having lost her, and my eyes gazed at the moon, forever beyond my reach, as I sought her. And I saw her. She was there where I had left her, lying on a beach directly over our heads, and she said nothing. She was the color of the moon. She held the harp at her side and moved one hand now and then in slow arpeggios. I could distinguish the shape of her bosom, her arms, her thighs, just as I remember them now. Just as now, when the moon has become that flat, remote circle, I still look for her as soon as the first sliver appears in the sky. And the more it waxes, the more clearly I imagine I can see her, her or something of her, but only her in a hundred, a thousand different vistas, she who makes the moon the moon, and, whenever she is full, sets the dogs to howling all night long, and me with them. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Did that story check both boxes for you? It did for me. The opening pages with its incredible setting. The situation, the old man recalling the ancient times when the moon was big and scaly and crusted with fish and fish parts. And people in boats could jump right up and land on the moon, moving from right side up to upside down and vice versa. And wasn't the second box checked too? The love story... The cousin who toys with the moon, who makes it his thing, his plaything, the woman who loves that about him and wants to be part of it, and the narrator who loves the woman but can never be what she wants him to be. 
She has a tragic end, melting into the moon as her lover. The object of her love pushes it away. Just one more joke to him. Just one more clever and dexterous trick. And the narrator has to watch it happen and learns of his own yearning for home in the middle of it. A beautiful, beautiful story. Speaking of beautiful, beautiful things, that's how I feel about you, dear listeners, who have made it all the way through an action-packed episode today. We had Chris Farley at the African Library Project and emails galore. What a day. My thanks to Robin and Tatiana for telling us about the African Library Project. Don't you think you could get that done? Not me, not us, you. You in your house. A thousand books, $500 by hook or by crook. Don't you think you can leave a library behind? Send one out into the world. Leave a bright little stamp somewhere. A ribbon tied around those shelves. A way of making young minds into readers, into thinkers, into the kind of people who are going to take us forward through their passion, their intellect, and their dreams. I can't think of a better thing to do. We'll be good for the soul, for your soul. So head on over to africanlibraryproject.org and see how you can help. And then meet me back here next time for a little Mike Palindrome and a lot of Shakespeare. What could be better? Maybe a lot of Mike Palindrome, you might be saying. Well, we have that too. (laughs) As much him as Shakespeare. That's all coming up on the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.